The following resource is from Cambrian Park Baptist Church. For more information, please visit cpbchurch.org. Heavenly Father, we recognize that it's by your grace and your grace alone that you've enabled us to gather here this morning on this glorious Lord's Day and worship you in spirit and truth. I ask, Father, that as we approach this text, we would see, as Kirk said, the good disruption of the gospel of grace, that we would, wa- we would not want to see and allow the perpetuation of evil in this culture. We would not want to see, Father, a continuation of those who remain in rebellion against you, but instead would, by your power through your Spirit, see the gospel go out, see our friends, our family, our co-workers, those here in this neighborhood whom we don't even know hear the gospel, turn from their idols, repent, and follow Jesus. I ask, Lord, that we would find great hope and great encouragement in the disruption of the gospel that it's made in our lives and that we would participate in that great work this morning. Father, show us how now for centuries you've been doing this work of transforming cultures, cultures of darkness and death into cultures of light and life in your Son, and then enabling us to see your transformative power. Cause us, Lord, give us the desire, each of us, to faithfully participate in it. Father, I pray for Cambrian Park Baptist Church. We lift up all your true churches here in the area that we would collectively find the power in the gospel to transform this place, that San Jose would no longer be a stronghold for Satan, but a stronghold for Christ. And I ask, Lord, that we'd be faithful to engage in that ministry. Cause us, Lord, by your Spirit to do this great work. Give us that deep desire out of our love for Christ to do this work. I pray for my brothers and sisters that you give them clarity of thought, that they'd be able to remain focused and hear your word preached. I pray for myself, Father, that I would say only that which is most pleasing to you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So the title of the sermon is A Good Disruption, and that, that does, if you hadn't heard the, the sermon that Kirk did from Acts chapter 16, you might think that a bit odd, but we get the concept, right? We as, as Christians bringing the gospel to the lost are going to disrupt the lost. We're going to disrupt the idols of the culture, and we want that. Someone did that with you, and you're very thankful that they did. In 1776, our founding fathers of this country, they thought it best to disrupt the status quo of King George's tyranny by taking up arms against the British crown and establishing the free people of the United States of America. In the 1950s and 60s, Martin Luther King Jr., he helped lead the civil rights movement that eventually overturned legalized racism in this country. And even as we speak, my beloved, there are very many brave Ukrainian souls taking up the battlefield to push back the evil culture of Vladimir Putin. Throughout human history, godly men and women have fought to disrupt the injustice of life in this fallen world. But of all the people and all the movements throughout history that have brought real, lasting cultural change, real transformation, none compare to Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace. None compare to Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace. So as we jump back into Acts chapter 19, we're going to be finishing up um, Luke's, Luke's, Paul, Luke's going to be telling us about Paul, the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He spent two years in Ephesus, and he actually sets us up, look at verse 21, he sets us up for the rest of the book. Because the rest of the book is going to talk about Paul setting his face for Rome. 
As Christ set his face for Jerusalem on the cross, so does Paul to Rome. Look at verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul, he circles back and he he strengthens and he visits the churches that he had planted and he takes a collection. There's a famine right now taking place in Jerusalem. So he takes a collection to get some money to help his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. But from there, he said, I'm going to go to Rome. And he wanted to go to Rome because Rome was the place to be, right? It was the, it's the New York of the United States. It's the place where transformation there means transformation elsewhere. He wanted to get there to strengthen the church that was in Rome. And, and according to the plan, he also wanted to get into Spain. And so he was going to use Rome as his launching pad to get the, the gospel into Spain. But before he leaves Ephesus, after two years of ministry, there's time for one more uprising, right? And you wouldn't want to end the story in Ephesus without a good uprising because that's what happens when Paul visits a place. He goes to a place, he shares the gospel, and people raise up. I would like to see, for us to see this morning, how the gospel of Jesus Christ, when faithfully proclaimed and lived out, like Paul did for two years in Ephesus, it challenges the life of any culture in any place at any time. The gospel always challenges the status quo of a fallen world. And so I'd like to, I'd like to look at that in two ways. Number one, I want us to see how the gospel disrupts culture, your personal culture, the culture here in San Jose, and then how the gospel, number two, disrupts our idols. How the gospel disrupts our idols. It's really interesting. There's really no main player here in these verses. Paul is alluded to, but briefly, the main player, the main character is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the impact that gospel has in a fallen world. So the theme of the sermon is this, the gospel, a disruptive force for good. The gospel, a disruptive force for good. Are you with me? All right. Two points. (laughs) Number one. The gospel disrupts culture. So as a result of the fall, my beloved, all cultures throughout human history have experienced and been subject to the problem of sin. So much so that even a brief history of man reveals sin and rebellion against God as a cross-cultural norm for all people in all places at all time. The struggle of mankind is not just subject to the San Francisco Bay Area. It is throughout the world and has been for all of human history. Ephesus was no exception to the struggle. So when Paul came preaching the gospel of redemption and faith in this crucified risen Savior, the culture pushed back. It fought back just as it does when you do the same here. Look at verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So Demetrius, you probably know that name if you've read through the scriptures. He's a silversmith. In, a silversmith, then they did lots of, of, of work in terms of working with silver and other things. But he particularly built little tiny, little tiny shrines, silver shrines, to the goddess of Artemis. And those shrines were used, they were purchased by people, and they were used in in their homes, they would build little sanctuaries in their homes and they would pray and genuflect to um, the goddess Artemis. They were used for pilgrims when they were pilgrims when they were traveling, they would take the shrine with them. And some of them were actually purchased and then put in the, the temple itself as an act of worship. Now Artemis, according to Greek mythology, Artemis was the twin of Apollos. And um, I don't know if you if you know this, that she was 
She was the goddess. We talked about this last week, I think. She was the goddess of the hunt and wild animals and living things. She was actually, according to the, the great war between the Titans and the Olympians, she replaced uh, Selene as the goddess of the moon. But the goddess... Artemis of the Ephesians was not the same God we see in the Greek pantheon. The Ephesian Artemis was considered, now listen to this, she was considered the mother goddess of all living things, far superior to the, the goddess of Artemis according to Greek mythology. She was believed to be the goddess of fertility and protector and provider of all life. So she had a status much higher in Ephesus than in other places throughout the Greco-Roman world. And there was a, the image of her in the temple. Um, many believe that was part of a, something that had fallen from the skies. As you heard Kirk read when, when the, the mayor is explaining to them what they believe. Some believe that actually be a meteorite that came down. There was a rock there that established her presence in Ephesus. We don't know about that. It's, it's speculation. But the temple itself, you've probably heard of it. The Temple of Artemis is one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. It's an amazing structure. There are still pieces of it there. Um, at the time, it was the temple, just the temple proper, was 5,700 square feet. So, yeah, wow is right. Imagine a house like that. So it's massive, and it was, it was cover, it colored beautifully, and it had gold leafing all around it. And so it was a place that drew people throughout the empire. Um, the Ephesians believed the goddess of Artemis was their god. And they were very jealous of her and very protective of her. In fact, each year they would have the, the festival Artemision. Isn't that great? The Artemision, they would come for seven days and people throughout the empire would come and they would bring uh, things to worship and sacrifice to this goddess. In other words, Artemis was part and parcel with the culture of Ephesus, right? The temple worship was intertwined with their religion and their economy. You could not separate the two. So, when we're told here that she brought no little business, the other way to say that is what she brought a lot of business, right, to Demetrius and everyone else associated with temple worship. The worship of Artemis was a cash cow, right? Lots of money coming in and out. Look at verse 25. Speaking now of Demetrius, these he gathered, other silversmiths he gathered with him, with the workmen in similar trades, and he said this, look, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Verse 26. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, this Paul, has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made without hands are not gods. We'll get back to that verse a little bit later. So Demetrius is good. This guy, he's a good political activist. And he goes and he gets other silversmiths and other people that are working in the trades. And he says, look it, this Paul is disrupting our pocketbooks. Verse 25, men, you know that from this business, that's the business of Artemis worship, we have our wealth. And then he even assessed the problem correctly. He, had, he attaches the turning to the Apostle Paul, but it wasn't Paul. It was the gospel and the Holy Spirit that were moving people out of idolatry to the living God, Jesus Christ. Verse 26, persuading and turning away a great many people. So the culture, this is important, the culture is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in their transformation, they're no longer worshiping Artemis, they're worshiping who? The one true living God. The one true living God who is not an idol made by human hands, but is the God who what? Made all human hands. This Jesus Christ, this living God. And so this movement was not just in Ephesus. Demetrius pleads, he said, but in almost all of Asia. And that's true. 
Paul had made his way around Asia, and the gospel had been going out. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to what Demetrius does next. This is smooth. This is really smooth. His primary concern, we know from the get-go, is his pocketbook. Right? He's concerned about his bottom line. But in order, that's not going to stir up a crowd. Right? In order to get the people motivated, he's going to appeal to religion. And so he, he taps into identity politics. It's, long, it's old, right? He taps into identity politics and the Ephesian pride of their great goddess Artemis. Look at verse 27. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, that we may go out of business, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and all the world worship. So he's, he's going overboard a little bit there. That's not a true statement, not all of Asia and all the world. But he's trying to grab their hearts. That we've got to, he's saying, we've got to fight for our goddess. We've got to make sure that her magnificence and her grandeur stay magnificent. In fact, he says, arguing that if they don't do something about this, Paul... And this gospel, look at verse 27, Artemis' temple will be counted as nothing and she will be, latter part of verse 27, deposed from her magnificence. And he says, we, we can't let this to happen. We can't let it happen. We've got to fight back. And he's essentially saying, listen, our entire culture, this is a true statement, he said, our entire culture is contingent upon the worship of this goddess. If we let this go, so too do we go. And their prophets and the impact it would have. So verse 28 Demetrius had an impact. He, he stirred up the crowd, but most commentators agree he stirred him up a little bit too much. I don't think he was looking for what he got here. Look at verse 28. When they, those that gathered, heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 29, so the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, uh, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So Gaius and Aristarchus, two of Paul's disciples, they're, they're scooped up into this crowd. They're brought into the theater. The theater there at the time, it sat about 20,000 people. So I want you to imagine this gathering. It's packed with the city. And they're there without a clear leader. They're without a clear purpose. And so Luke tells us it's just filled with confusion. Not a place I think you'd want to be, right, in, in this crowd of people all shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, Luke tells us Paul's there. Paul's not the main piece in this story. Paul's there, and, and he gets word of, of Gaius and uh, Aristarchus being taken into the city, and he wants to go in and help. Um, but his, and, and out of his love for them, out of his love for Christ, thinking I can maybe bring some peace here. But the disciples say, you're not going to go. Um, even some of the, the Azarchs, they were, they, those were the people in charge of the theater, and he was actually friends with them, which is kind of a cool thought. They said, no, you, you shouldn't go. Not only dangerous for you, but you might make things worse. So stay here. Um, and, and he listened to them. And then even a Jew by the name of Alexander attempted to speak to the crowd. So he stands up, and they realize he's a Jew, and they drown him out for two hours. They shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Your modern-day rock concert there taking place in Ephesus. Luke tells us in verse 22 that some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. This is, this is humorous, my beloved. They're there by the thousands. They're shouting. They're screaming. They're going, what are you doing here? I have no idea. What are you doing here? I don't know. This is amazing. 
So it started as a legitimate economic complaint turned into a riot of confused, purposeless people. And so Luke tells us that the town clerk, that's the mayor, town clerk, we think of town clerk as someone, that's the mayor of the city, and he moves quickly to a free city, made free by the Romans in 133 B.C., and they did not want to lose this standing. And so the mayor, even though the mayor was elected by the Ephesians and he served there, he served ultimately under the Roman proconsul. And so he understood that if he did not get this group settled down quickly, the Romans would intercede and it would be messy for everyone. There's one thing the Romans hated. They hated disorder of this nature. And so he reasons with them, and he reasons with them wisely. This was not necessarily a godly man. We don't believe he knew Christ based upon his, his adoration for Artemis, but he was a wise man. He affirms the importance first of their worship, trying to get them to say, hey, you know, we're not going to lose this. Look at verse 35, the latter part. The mayor stands up, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? This belief that, that a meteorite or something came from heaven. And then he declares the innocence of Gaius and um, Aristarchus. Look at verse 37. He says, you brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Right? So they, they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The implication would be Artemis is a false god, but they weren't preaching that specifically. They were preaching uh, a crucified, risen Savior. And then the third thing he appeals to is the rule of law. He says, look, we got courts. Look at verse 38. He said, if, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with, their, with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are pro-councils, there are appellate courts, let them bring charges against one another. And he says, so the courts are there, and even, he said, even the legislature's there to help. Look at verse 39. But if you seek anything further, if the courts don't help, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. In other words, the mayor comes in and says, listen, we don't want rule of the mob, we want rule of law here in order to make sure that they don't suffer the consequences. And then he explains the danger and they all leave. Look at verse 40. He said, we really are in danger. We're in great danger of being charged by whom? By the Romans with rioting today since there is no cause that we give to justify this commotion. He said, listen, there's no reason that we're here. These guys are innocent. Artemis is still in the temple. We have no purpose for being here. And therefore the Romans, if they come in, they're going to they're gonna crush this gathering. And they may even take away our free standing as a city, in which case no election for the mayor or any of else who served there. They understood that the wrath of the Roman sword could be deadly. And so suddenly, great is Artemis of Ephesus, took a back seat to the power of the Roman sword, and they all, he said in verse 41, and when he, the mayor, said these things, he dismissed the assembly, and they all went home. Right? Most of them didn't know why they were in the first place, so they, they went back to their normal lives. So what started as, a, as an economic um, question debate turned into a massive uprising, and then ended peacefully by God's grace, without Paul's intervention, by the way. So it was good counsel he not go in. Um, and there, so there'd be no martyrs that day in Ephesus. But what Ephesus, the response the Ephesians had to the impact of the gospel becomes prototypical what we see in the New Testament. And certainly what we want to see, I would say, in our lives and here in San Jose. And that is this, when the gospel, listen, when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed and lived out by God's people, it will always impact the culture in which God's people are living. It will always impact and change the culture for the better, regardless of where we are in human history. The great 
preacher and pastor of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he once said this. He said, it is the evangelical gospel and its preaching that has the greatest impact politically and socially on any culture. Did you hear that? It is the evangelical gospel and its preaching that has the greatest impact politically and socially. And he continues. He said, when you build up a man spiritually and make a true Christian of him, then he develops a social conscience and he will change the culture. Isn't that great? When someone comes to a saving grace in Jesus Christ and they mature in their faith, they will have a social conscience that will lead to change. And not necessarily because we will suddenly become these radical, disruptive people in the culture, but we will not be bowing down to idols. We will not be coming and participating in all the idolatry and all the evil of our time. And because of that, the idols will die. What a great way to approach the idols of our time, but to not participate and see them perish. So, for example, those in Ephesus, those who had heard the gospel proclaimed by Paul and the others, and the Holy Spirit moved upon them and saved them, they actually started following Jesus. Many of them, as we saw last week, they were, their, their transformation was radical. They gave up all the witchcraft and all the sorcery. Remember, they brought all their books worth all that money, and they burned them in the city streets. And then the economic crisis that we see uh, Demetrius and the others experiencing Listen, it, it wasn't because Christians said, let's go and smash windows and steal things from Demetrius. Let's steal all those tools so we can't do it. Kind of like the modern you know, protest we see today. Right? They didn't do that. They didn't even go to the temple and try to bomb the temple or desecrate the statue of Artemis. They didn't do any of these things. They simply forsook the worship of idols. In this particular case, they forsook the worship of the goddess Artemis and all the commercial enterprise that surrounded that. And in so doing, Demetrius was right. She will perish. There will be no idol. There will be no temple. There will be no economy that supports her if this culture continues to go in this direction. And that's exactly what we want. When you think about all the idols in our cultural moment and all the money and resources that go to things that, that we know our Lord hates. When Christians say, we will not participate. We will not join in. Those idols lose their power for 2,000 years, my beloved, especially in the Western world, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been instrumental, the gospel, in changing the culture for the better. I had two pages on this. I can to do a paragraph because I haven't got the time. But listen, science and medicine, you do know, come from Christianity. The science and medicine we see in the Western world, the belief that God created all that is seen and unseen, that he is a reasonable God and created things reasonably and therefore we can know him through science is because of Christianity. The, 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 the advances in medicine as a result of what? Of, of truly believing that every human being is creating the image of God and therefore valuable and therefore we want to care for every human being well. The strides made in education for all people were so that mankind might be able to do what? To know God's word, right? God has spoken through his word. So we want people to know how to read and write so they can know God's word. The abolition of slavery, the advancement of women, the protection of children, economic prosperity, the list goes on and on and on. All good cultural movements resulting from the gospel going out, people being saved, following Christ, and cultures are transformed. Transformed. There's a reason why the East and the West are so different. There's a reason why you're thinking so differently than Vladimir Putin. It's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we don't, we don't preach politics. We don't preach 
on social justice or psychology or self-help from this pulpit. I pray those aren't things that you spend a lot of time preaching either because the power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to change hearts. And when hearts are changed, when a heart is changed to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and follow Christ, you know what's going to happen? Cultures change. Your culture will change. By God's grace, your family's culture will change, and that will move out. And then you'll see transformation in the larger culture as well. So we preach a crucified Savior because there's power in that. So the same is true, my beloved. If you want to see if you want to see the Demetrius you have, your colleague at work, you know that person, driven by money, driven by success in their job. If you want to see the Demetriuses at your work truly changed, stop trying to make them conservative Republicans. Okay, that's not our job as Christians. Stop that. It's not effective anyway. Spend time, as Paul did, reasoning with them, teaching them, so they might what? Come to see Christ. And in seeing Christ they will behave properly. If you want to see the bondage of those in your family, maybe friends, who are still so tied in the culture, you have lunch or dinner, and all you hear about is the pursuit of money, the pursuit of pleasure, or the pursuit of popularity. You want them to change, I mean really change, it's not outside in. Stop trying to modify their behavior. Go inside out, preach the gospel, pray the Holy Spirit would save them, because when he does, then they too will change. And it won't be temporary. It'll be permanent. If you want your family and friends to be as Christ is, you will preach to them the gospel. You want to see the popular culture change? I hear Christians talking so much about laws, politicians, and cultural movements today that God hates. You want want your politicians? You want people to vote for different politicians? You want different laws to come into place? I'm not saying that you shouldn't advocate for some of these things. Don't, Don't get me wrong. But the real change will take place when Christians share the gospel, and other people become Christians, they will then vote for whom? For godly leaders and godly laws. Right? So transformation is from the inside out. And if you, my beloved, if you are tired of being conformed to this world, if you said, you know, I, I want to be more counter-cultural in the best possible way in my pursuit of Jesus Christ, then I would encourage you to stop your attempts at behavior modification as well. Stop the fleshly willpower. I can do it. You can't do it. You can't change your culture, your personal culture, more than you can change the culture of San Jose or the world. But Jesus Christ can. So, pursue Christ passionately with all your might. Commit yourself regularly, daily to the means of grace. Spend time in God's word. Meditate on God's word. Have God speak to you directly through his word. Spend time talking to God, talking back to God with the prayer after you read. Spend time engaging in the ministry and being in community just like this. You do that. Get your heart radically focused on the Savior, your Savior, and your culture, your personal culture will change. And you'll be able to, in the power of the Spirit, take every thought captive. What a blessing you'll be to others. Right? If you are set on mission for Christ, what a what an impact you're going to have on, on your, your marriage and your children and, and your neighbors and your coworkers, right? You, your personal culture changes and the culture around you will change for the glory of God, right? That's why we want to do this, for God's glory, to be made new. So point number one, I hope that you see that the gospel disrupts cultures in the best possible ways, amen? All right, so the question is, how does that happen? I mean, is it just a snap of a finger? 
Cultures take a long time to be transformed, but the gospel does not take a long time. Right? Someone comes to a saving grace, and when they're born again, they are born again. And so if there's one thing, if you, see, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm so tired of waiting. Well, there's no better answer than Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace. Point number two, the gospel disrupts our idols. The gospel changes and disrupts the culture by disrupting our idols. So when the gospel goes forth, and people come to a saving grace, cultures change because the gospel has the power to do two incredible things. Number one, the gospel exposes, listen, the total, complete, 100% inadequacy of every idol in your life. The gospel says your idols are truly worthless. They fail you at every point and they will fail you in the end. And number two, the gospel exposes the idol behind all the idols. Right, we got lots of idols in our life, but they're usually driven by one primary idol, which we'll look at. So first, stay with me now. How does the gospel expose the inadequacy of our idols? How did it do so in Ephesus? How did the Ephesians, how did they come to understand their beloved Artemis was not all that beloved? Well, for two years, we know the apostle Paul was, he was teaching and reasoning with them from God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there was a missionary on site doing the work. And what was he doing? He was, saying, he was saying very simply, the God of the Bible is the one true living God. There is no other God. That means all your temple worship, all your sacrifices, all your genuflection, all your little tiny silversmith created miniature temples, they are worthless, powerless. They had seen what? They had seen the power of the Holy Spirit do. We saw not so ordinary, extraordinary miracles through the Apostle Paul. Aprons and handkerchiefs moving around, touching Paul and healing people. They had seen these things taking place. And then they saw, if you remember last week, they saw the seven sons of Siva brutalized and stripped naked and sent out in humility by a very real demon. And so as Paul continued to preach and teach the one true living God, his son Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit that, that was being evidenced by the miracles, many in Ephesus began to see the foolishness of worshiping the goddess Artemis. They began to see that what? That she had no real power. Right? It was a building. A big building, a beautiful building, but it was a building. And they began to see that. And they began to see that this testimony of Christ was real. My beloved, man's struggles are they're obvious to us. Right? We, we know we're a mess. We know personally we're a mess. We look around and we see that we're all a mess. We look at the larger culture and even the world today. You spend 30 minutes watching or reading about the news and you won't think that man is inherently good. You won't conclude that. You'll know there's a real problem. The problem isn't seeing our sinful condition. It's seeing the solution to it. It's not, well, I'm a mess, we're a mess, the culture's a mess, the world's a mess, but what's the answer? How do we overcome our messiness? Now, I would argue that, that no one will believe your gospel testimony of God and Jesus Christ and they, unless they believe that that God has real power to change the mess we're in. They're not going to believe it. Right? They're not, they're not going to say, oh yes, of course. In order for God to truly be embraced, he must be seen as a God who is truly powerful and can and will make real changes to our sinful hearts. Let's, let's circle back to verse 26 again. Demetrius said this, 
He said, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Now listen to what he says, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. I mean, you hear that statement, and you have to stop and go, what? What did he, he's, Paul's saying that, he's saying it as though Paul shouldn't have said it, and essentially, Demetrius condemns the goddess of Artemis, because she and her temple were what? Made with human hands. My beloved, if man, this is simple, if man is the problem, then any God, any idol made with human hands, human minds, human hearts cannot solve the problem. If we're the problem, then whatever we make will only make the problem worse. Not only that, whatever we make with our own hands, by definition, what? Can't be God. Can't be God. Right, to be God, truly God, God must be the creator of man. We would say the creator of all that is seen and unseen and a creator that needs absolutely nothing from his creation. Nothing from his creation. Right, so this doctrine, which you probably remember us teaching, this the doctrine of divine aseity, A-S-I-E-I-T-Y, aseity. It teaches that God exists eternally, independent of his creation, and he has no problem with sin. God in and of himself. He is self-sufficient and he is self-existent and therefore any God made with human hands by, defi- by definition cannot be God. And so the, the people of Ephesus start, these were not stupid people. They're like, all right, all right, I'm getting this. This doesn't make any sense. How can this God that we make with our hands be God? How can this goddess who's supposed to be what? The protector and provider of all life protect and provide for us. In fact, Demetrius even testifies to this any God that needs its creatures to ensure that it, one, will not be, look at verse 27, be counted as nothing, or two, be deposed from its magnificent, is not a God you want to worship. Right? Any God that's contingent upon its power and its glory and majesty by what we do, by them shouting in the streets, great is Artemis, by them making their little temples, well, that can't be a God worth worshiping because it's not a God that has the power to do what? To solve the problem of sin. It's not a God that can provide and protect their lives as they believed. And so their own consciences testified against the fact that Artemis was not great. Artemis was not powerful. Um, no matter how much they shouted, no matter how much they spent time in the temple, Artemis was supposed to be their goddess of protection and provision. So a god that needs something from man cannot be that god that provides something for man. That makes sense, right? No God this needy could possibly protect and provide for man who is needy. So the gospel comes in and says, all idols that offer this are a total lie, every single one. The gospel reveals that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the one who what? He is the one who protects. He's the one who provides. He is truly the one who gives life to all living things. The gospel of Jesus Christ revealed clearly the total inadequacies of the goddess Artemis. Verse 26, and a great many turned away as a result. They saw the truth, right? They, they heard the gospel and they saw the truth. This Artemis is powerless, but this God that Paul is proclaiming, this one true living God and this Savior Jesus Christ, he's not powerless, he's all-powerful, all-loving, able to save, able to protect, able to provide by grace through faith. Amazing transformation. The one, 
the only one who can bring real, lasting change to the individual heart and to cultures in this dying world. The one, my beloved, listen, and you know this, we just had a chance to sing it. He is the one who is glorious. He is majestic. He is beautiful in and of himself, regardless of how many people count him worthy or not worthy. The glory of God does not change based upon whether or not we shout, great is Jesus Christ. The glory of God does not change if we gather here or do not gather here. The glory of God and Jesus Christ stay the same forever because he is in and of himself glorious. He is the glorious one. Now we're not so different from Demetrius, I don't think, when we consider some of the false gods that we've made with our hands, our hearts, and our minds. Idols that we've turned to for protection and provision. And maybe even we've told other people how great these idols are. Maybe we've shouted it from the top of our lungs. And it doesn't have to be an idol presiding in one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If that idol captivates you in your heart, then you are subject to it. Lately, my beloved, I've heard several Christians express extreme anxiety over what is taking place in the Ukraine. I mean, we see things on the news and we're reading things and it's happening on the European continent that we haven't seen since World War II. It's a long time, right? But the anxiety that I hear from Christians, some even saying, you know, are we next? Are, are, are Russians going to land here on American soil? And there's real fear there. I'm afraid that, that many Christians have put a false sense of hope and security in a post-Cold War world where we've seen relative peace since 1989. And we're resting in, in a geopolitical security and not the security of a crucified risen Savior. And so that anxiety is bearing itself out. Not that you shouldn't be troubled by what's happening, but if you are anxious as a Christian, right, we're told what? To be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and petition, submit your request to the Lord. Your security's in Christ, not President Biden, not Vladimir Putin, not what's taking place in Europe or here or China. It's in Jesus Christ that you find your security. Others I've heard comment recently on the rise in prices, plummeting 401ks and their anger that they're not going to be able to retire on time. Mm. My beloved, the idol of financial security, even this moment is being torn to shreds. Maybe very good for many in this very wealthy place. Exposing many hearts in the church that if we have put our hope and our security in our financial planning, in our pocketbooks, in our savings account, and not Jesus Christ. We're no different than Demetrius. Right? We may look different, we may act different because we use the name Christ instead of Artemis, but ultimately if our heart belongs to money, if wealth is what drives us and gets us out of bed in the morning, then that is our security, not God. Not God. You don't have to have a physical statue in a physical temple to see the real idols of the human heart. What are you anxious about? What are you, what are you having those sleepless nights about? What do you get depressed over? What do you get overly excited about? Like Pursue some of those, my beloved. Even the good things can be idols if we're not careful. But the gospel, and I love this, the gospel always goes deeper, right? We talk about that. We think about, that, we think about money and success and popularity, and these are absolutely idols. But the, the gospel is, we're not going to stop there. We're going to keep driving down. And the gospel reveals the idols behind every idol or the idol behind every every idol. Let's look at Demetrius one more time before I close. His motivational words to get the entire city 
excited to go and march into the theater shouting, great is, is Artemis of Ephesus. It started, if you remember, and it was predicated upon his opening salvo to his fellow tradesmen. Verse 25, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And oh, by the way, we've got to protect Artemis. Right? His, what drove this man was not Artemis, and it was not a worship of her. It was his pocketbook. He desired primarily, it says here, his wealth. And all, so all the commercial enterprise that surrounded the worship of Artemis in the temple was affecting him, and that's why he was upset, right? Now remember, the timeline here is very interesting. This is the end of Paul's two-year ministry. For two years, the apostle Paul had been preaching and teaching crucified, risen Savior Jesus Christ. For two years, Demetrius and others could have stepped in, but they did not. Why? Because it didn't hit their pocketbook yet. It wasn't until Many believers in Ephesus came to a saving grace and they were no longer participating in the sale of these little tiny shrines that would go into the temple. And his sales went down. And when his sales went down, his wealth went down. And suddenly we get a glimpse into Demetrius' heart. We know what drove the man now. Now some of the commentators say, well, maybe he worshipped, maybe he believed in Artemis, maybe he didn't. It doesn't really matter. We know the priority because the priority is established in his speech. We know what got him out of the bed every morning to fire up his forge and do his icon work. It wasn't his great love for Artemis or the temple, but his greater love for wealth. Now, my beloved, if there's a time and a place in our cultural moment, Silicon Valley would be one to hear this message. We, we live in a very, very, very wealthy place. When you say, how much will it cost me to buy a three-bedroom, two-bath, 1,500-square-foot home, and someone tells you $1.3 million, and you fall over and get back up again? If you have relatives and friends throughout the nation, they go, what, what are you, crazy? Well, that's, that's the money that's being made here, right? Wealth drives this area. But it's not, we must remember, it's not the money itself. It's what the money buys, right? The idol may be money, but it's what the money gets you. So for Demetrius, what did that mean then in that cultural moment? It meant he, he could live a much more comfortable life. And many probably had servants in his home doing things that we don't want to do. It, it very likely meant he had power. Money was equated to power then as it is today in his local community and certainly meant that he had connections to powerful people, others who were also wealthy and other politicians. Um, I think most of all, though, it gave him the ability to live a Western life in the Mediterranean culture in the first century. He could be what? He could be independent. He could be his own man if he made this kind of money. So the heart, the idol behind the idol of money was not money. It was what the money could do for Demetrius to have autonomy and security and power and freedom having no one over him. You say, well, you know what? That sounds very familiar to Genesis chapter 3, does it not? What was the idol behind the idol? What was the idol behind the, the goddess Artemis behind the money? At the very heart of it, it was Demetrius' desire to what? To be like God. Was it not? It is the same today. Every single idol that we play with in our lives, every single idol that we see in the culture, ultimately comes down to that desire, that Adam and Eve, Genesis 3 desire, to be like God. You say, well, but they ate from the tree that the God said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Certainly that, there was an idol and a temptation there. But the idol beneath it was what? They said, if we eat from this, we can be like God. And it was that desire 
You say, well, what, what does it mean to be like God? Well, we have some things here in the passage. God's self-sufficient in need of nothing and no one. God is secure. He is the Almighty, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is threatened by no one. God is at peace, disturbed by no one for all eternity. God is self-willed, controlled by no one. God, because of who he is, his character and nature, is worthy of all honor and glory simply because of who he is. So Adam and Eve, they weren't satisfied. They, they weren't satisfied being image bearers who would take God's glory and give it back to him and reflect it to the world. They wanted to be like God, the idol behind all idols. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in and it wrecks that idol entirely, doesn't it? I, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in and says, creature, you're not God. God is God. You were created in the image of God. It's, you're a glorious creation, but you are a creature. You are not God. You will never be God. But Jesus, here's the incredible story of redemption. Jesus says, I've come down to pay for your sins and bring you into my family that you can become a son or daughter of God. And as a son or daughter of God, you can receive my glory now and reflect it back to God and to creation forever and ever. A much better story, by the way. You would be a horrible God. I would be a horrible God. Only God can be God, but you can be a creature made in his image to reflect his glory. And that is beautiful. That is beautiful. I'm going to tell you a quick story and I'm going to close. I had a young woman as a former student years ago. She was raised in an abusive home by an ungodly father. I want you to listen closely because I think this taps into most of our idols behind our idols. She was one of the most driven students I had ever had in 14 years of teaching. I mean, she was, she was bright and she was motivated. She wanted to get the best degrees from the best schools, to get the best job at the best company, to make the most amount of money in the shortest period of time. And oh, by the way, she said to me, I will never, ever get married. Adamant. 18. So I had a chance to probe a little deeper, and I discovered something behind all these earthly pursuits. Why did she want to be self-sufficient? Why did she want to be like God? Because she didn't want to rely on anyone like her father, to care for her. She wanted to be able to care for herself. She wanted to be secure. She wanted to be on her own. She didn't want to have to rely upon anyone to protect her or provide for her because her father did not. She wanted to be at peace, and in her mind, she thought being at peace was being alone. She said, never, ever will I get married so that I can be at peace. She wanted to be self-willed. She didn't want anyone over her telling her what to do. And she wanted her plan of success to bring her glory. She wanted her name to be known for the success that she would bring. And by God's grace, over a period of time, I had a chance to reason with her and reveal the futility of her earthly pursuit and how Jesus, out of his love for her as a sinner, is able to give her what her heart really wanted. And that wasn't to be like God, but to be a daughter of the real living God. To be truly cared and truly loved and truly protected as God made her to be. I showed her how Jesus, the perfectly self-sufficient God-man, lived a life of humility, suffering, and death. The opposite 
of worldly success, the opposite of what she desired, that he did this. I showed her that she, he did this so that she could, by grace through faith, be brought into the family of God and made sufficient by his blood. She was intrigued. I showed her how Jesus gave up the security of heaven to come down and put on flesh and bear the wrath of God in our place so that we could, by grace through faith, have the eternal security of being sons and daughters of God, never to be judged again. I shared with her how Christ gave up peace with God, how he ascended upon the cross and received in his flesh the full wrath of God, the equivalency of our hell, what she deserved, what we deserved, so that by grace through faith we could have what? Peace with God. Not peace by remaining alone, never getting married, but peace with God. I shared with her how Christ, by his own free will, joyfully, voluntarily ascended the cross to bear our punishment so that our wills, enslaved by sin, which hers was, could be set free to do what? To walk in righteousness. I showed her the glory of God. I tried to paint a picture of the majesty of Jesus his holiness, and his mercy, his incredible love for fallen creation, his desire to see his people made new, to transform this broken place. I tried to bring that to her so that she might see this God is a good and gracious God and wants her in, not out forever. I tried to show her that it was God who, through Christ, redeems us not to become God's, but to become image bearers who reflect God's glory perfectly, who saves us forever to be in his presence. I showed her that her pursuits, even if perfectly achieved, would only end in disappointment. Temporally, I said, get what you want, and then you're at the end of your life, and you realize that those idols that you're pursuing give you nothing, give you nothing. And then I showed her ultimately, I said, live that life, leave this life, and you will come before God, not as Savior, but as judge. And he will judge you for being a self-serving, glory-starved, want-to-be-like-God person. My beloved, the good news of this story, she, like those in Ephesus, she listened to the reasoning. She made a profession of faith, and she has followed Christ ever since. She was a hard nut to crack. I didn't think there was going to be much hope for her. Last I heard, she gave up her desire to conquer the world. She is happily married with two children, and she still loves the Lord. What had happened? Well, she saw that the idolatry and the motivation, desire to be like God, was truly powerless, that that would only end in destruction. She saw Christ clearly in all of his beauty, the sacrifice that he made, and she gave her life to him. And she was transformed. And she has transformed her husband. And she is transforming her children. And she will no doubt impact all those in her cultural moment. My beloved, we want to be like Paul. And we want to bring the light of the gospel to all those in our mission field. We want them to see what this young lady saw. Is that their idols, like Artemis, are powerless. They have no power to help. They have no power to save. But Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ has the power to save us and set us free from this desire to be like God that we might worship God.
and all that that entails. We want our homes. We want this church. We want San Jose. We want the mission field to be transformed from a culture of death to a culture of life. I know you want that. I know. If you know Christ, I know you want that. You may say, I'm not getting there. I'm not seeing it in my family. Keep praying. Keep preaching. Only Jesus Christ, only the gospel of grace, only a crucified, risen Savior, listen, has the power to disrupt sinful people in sinful cultures that they might worship the living God. Only Christ, only the gospel. Let it be upon your lips all the time. What a joy that we, God's church, are called to participate in this great work of making all things new. What a joy, my beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be the people that you have called and equipped us to be by your Spirit through your Word. We want to recognize, Father, that real transformation only comes through Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace. We want to believe that in our own lives, Father, if we are are burdened with a lack of change and transformation. I pray, Lord, that you would direct us back to the cross, that you would cause our eyes to gaze upon our crucified, risen Savior, and in that, Father, be changed from the inside out. I pray you would begin that today, that you would bless my brothers and sisters, those who are in a rut those who do not feel like they've changed much recently, that you would cause them to worship Christ well today, tomorrow, this week, and change our culture, Father, here in our own hearts. I pray, Lord, that that would spill over into our marriages and with our children and in this church and our community, and that through the gospel of grace and through the testimony upon our lips and with our hands, Lord, the ones that you made for us to serve you, that we would see this culture transformed. Father, make us bold in our love for others. Make us bold in our love for the lost that this mission field might become a place that is transformed out of the darkness and into the light. Father, I pray for Christ to reign in our homes, in this church, and in San Jose, that this would become a stronghold written about by historians for centuries, that this becomes a stronghold of Jesus Christ, San Jose. How glorious, Father, if if you would cause us to participate in that great work. I ask that you would, Lord, give us that desire that we might do it joyfully. Not because you need it, you need nothing, but because you want it and how pleasing it is to please you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Cambrian Park Baptist Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit cpbchurch.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.